Welcome to Leonard Lopate at Large. I'm Leonard Lopate. The Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater is currently in the midst of its annual season at New York City Center, and, and one of the most talked about works being performed is the world premiere of choreographer Donald Byrd's Greenwood, which tells the story of the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre through the medium of dance. Mr. Byrd is the Artistic Director of Spectrum Dance Theater in Seattle, where he has also served as Arts Commissioner, and his many awards include a Master's of Choreography Award from the Kennedy Center, a Fellowship at the American Academy of Jerusalem, a James Baldwin Fellow of United States Artists, the Doris Duke Artist Award, and grants from the Rockefeller Foundation National Endowment for the Arts. This is his fifth commission for the Ailey Company, and I'm very pleased to welcome him to our show now. Hi. Are you there? Yes, I am. Ah, great. I, w- I was mentioning that you'd already created dances about the Iraq War, the demonstrations in Tiananmen Square in 1989, the persecution of artists during the Holocaust, among others, uh, known as a conscientious choreographer. What got you thinking about creating a dance about the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre? Uh, well, I, I primarily because I I thought that not very very many people knew about it, and I am very committed to doing pieces that help uh, remind people of things that were lost that during that era, um, during the Jim Crow era, uh, and that in some ways the time that we're living in now is not really. Uh, is not dissimilar, mm-hmm. I think, to that period of time. We do see some echoes, although not as horrifying as this. Uh, yeah. you, you said that most people are unfamiliar with it, even though it's been called the single worst incident of racial violence in American history. So what happened yeah. in Tulsa in 1921? Uh, what we know that happened was that uh, a young man, uh, Dick Rowland, entered an elevator uh where the elevator operator was a young white woman named Sarah uh, Page. And while he was in the elevator, she screamed. Uh, he l- ran from the elevator and ran away. And then he was later uh, uh, caught by the, the, uh, the police or deputies or wh- whatever it was in the town in Tulsa. And then a group of white citizens came to uh, the jail to get him. And the sheriff uh, uh, sent them away. He said, no, he didn't need any help, and they needed to go home. Then later, some black citizens showed up, and they offered to protect uh, Dick Rowland. And the officer said, no, he had it under control. Later, that group of white citizens went into the Greenwood section of Tulsa, which was the black neighborhood, pretty affluent, and uh, they proceeded to attack the citizens there. It was and called the Black they, Wall Street. So Yes, that's uh, correct. Was it uh, a, a national? Uh, it was prosperous in Tulsa, but did it also have a national significance? Yeah, it was, it was prosperous in the country. I mean, compared to, uh, it, you know, uh, to many communities at the time, it was actually was quite successful. And, I, and one of the things that probably helped precipitate the the massacre was not so much the incident that happened in the elevator, which we don't know what really happened, but what happened that was a kind of white envy about the prosperity of these black citizens. And so 
uh, and part of it was to kind of kind of put it not kind of but was to kind of kind of keep black people in their place and so any signs of actually being able to uh, to have benefited uh, from uh, the, the 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 country and the, the 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 ideals of the country had to be squashed, which they did by not only uh, killing people but also the 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 neighborhood was bombed. Mm. The a white mob descended on Greenwood, set fire to the the district. Was the Ku Klux Klan and bombed involved? it? I think that's important to yeah. uh, to know that it was bombed. And, and, and bombed well. in what way? What were they doing? They used kerosene bombs in an airplane mm. and they dropped them on the. They community. dropped them from an airplane. Yes. Oh. Was the KKK involved? Uh, the KKK didn't exist yet. Oh. How, well, actually, it had existed in the the 19th century, but yeah, I guess the resurgent KKK. Uh, yeah. So, so, do we know how many people were killed? I don't. We don't. I mean, I think. I mean, sometimes they say, you know, it's like 300, 400 people up into the thousands. We don't really know. I don't think they just discovered a mass grave in Tulsa mm-hmm. uh, that they believe was the result of the was there was a grave that was uh, dug right after the massacre to bury the people in Greenwood that died. And we're talking about something that happened 88 years ago, and they're just discovering the grave now? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, part of the, the part was that it was kind of ripe from the public records. Even the, at the time, it was reported on in the local newspaper, but then that got... Uh, that was taken. That disappeared somehow. A librarian so, told me that when the t- the local Tulsa newspapers were being microfilmed, stories about yeah. the massacre were cut out before they could be photographed. Yes. So yeah. So, <laughs> so they're I mean, trying so to, erase, the deliberate... to erase it from the historical record. That's right. And so that's one reason for doing the piece. You know, one of the reasons for doing the piece is to kind of help bring it, to kind of restore it to uh, the collective consciousness and memory, and uh, so that people are aware of it, and so they know uh, what has gone on in the country and what. I mean, the fear that I that I have, I think, is that history repeats itself. Hmm. Was the Greenwood area eventually rebuilt? Uh, kind of, sorta. I mean, I was there. Uh, when I first heard of Greenwood, I was there in Tulsa doing a performance, and the presenter there asked me if I wanted to go see the Greenwood area, and I didn't know what Greenwood was, and I said, sure, and I kind of went, and it seemed not uh, particularly interesting to me because I didn't know the history, and I think he was acting as if I knew, and I went to the, there's a center there that uh, that was kind of commemorating the uh, the massacre, and I kind of looked at some things, and the neighborhood, the part that I saw, it's it looked a little bit blighted, you know, and so uh, and that something had happened there, but it had not been completely rebuilt. I hear now that's not the case; that there's been, you know, that a, a, a lot of it has been restored. People are living there again, but that was ten years ago, and it was still. Uh, I mean, it looked like a blighted neighborhood that had not recovered from the incident in 1921. So is it only in recent years that what happened has become better known? Yes. I mean, it was not even known to the black citizens of uh, Tulsa, apparently, as well. What was uh, Dick Rowland charged with, and was he ever convicted? He was never charged with anything. Hmm. 
and he was never convicted after the, the after the the massacre happened. Uh, I mean, he was released, and then because she said nothing happened, and then he. But the girl said nothing happened. The girl said nothing happened. So why did she scream? Apparently, he stepped on her toe. Oh. She was a teenage white girl. He was a, That's right. a young black he was man. A te- that, that yeah, he was a teenager as well, too, a late teenager in his late teens. Mm-hmm. So he he never – did he go to jail? Uh, he was only in jail in that brief 24 hours where he was being held after he was arrested or taken into custody – and then he was held. The riot, the massacre took place, and then uh, and then she said nothing happened. And then he was released, and he left town. And were apparently any, never came back. Understandably, were any of the rioters arrested? Uh, no, I mean I think it's really interesting that we're saying rioters because I mean usually in the kind of coded language of today, uh, the assumption the assumptions are that rioters are black people. Or people of color, and then the rioters. I, I think it's really important to make the distinction that the rioters at that time were, uh, you know, were white. That the black people were protecting themselves, but the rioters, the people who did the attacking, were all white. The Ailey program includes a guide for audiences with an essay mm-hmm. by Hannibal B. Johnson. Who's Hannibal mm-hmm. B. Johnson? I don't know who Hannibal B. Johnson is, actually. I'm kind of, kind of I, do, I do know, actually. He's, okay, the chair so of the, he's the chair of the Education Committee for the 1921 Tulsa Race Massacre Centennial Commission, because uh-huh. the Centennial is coming up in just a couple of years. Uh-huh. And then he wrote a play called Big Mama Speaks, a Tulsa Race Riot Survivor's Story. So he obviously interviewed some people who'd lived through the riots, you, yeah, you you you've never been able to speak with him. Uh, no, I have not. I mean, I did one of the things that I was interested in doing that I wanted to do was kind of, in some ways, kind of look at what happened and then how people his, have interpreted what happened and how that shaped the uh, uh, how that shaped the narrative around the the. The massacre. I did uh, look at some interviews with people who were uh, children at the time who remember it, and uh, and before they passed away, they uh, there were some oral history uh, interviews with them, and I did listen to them, um, but I, you know, I didn't speak to anyone. I'm speaking with Donald Byrd, a choreographer whose uh, dance Greenwood is. Uh, about to, is being performed this week at the New York City Center uh, by the uh, Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater. This is WBAI New York ninety nine point five FM. Um, how did you how do you go about choreographing a dance that narrates historic events, especially uh, on such a large scale as this one? Yeah. That's an interesting question, and I mean, and 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 much of the work that I do, people ask me, well, how do you translate that into something that is dance or that is theater, and especially or Tiananmen Square or the Holocaust, or, or that does right that doesn't have words in it mm. in in terms of, and I mean, I think that's what the exploration, the the last ten or so years uh, uh, of my career has been about. How do you do that? I mean, in some ways, like I say, I don't know how you do it, 
Mm-hmm. You know, all I know is that I, 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 I do a lot of research. I, I have collaborators that I work with. I go into a studio and I start trying to figure out in the studio, working with people, how to uh, translate those moments in history and time into something that has some immediacy on the contemporary stage. And so it's basic. I mean, it's about exploration, and the techniques and methods appear to be different in some ways for for each piece. The thing that they do have in common is the uh, the research that goes into it, and kind of trying to deepen my understanding of 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 of, a, of, of an incident or a time, and trying to and uh, and and exploring what's the best way. To put that on the stage, I think the one of the things that I I, I say it's not a documentary film, uh, so it doesn't necessarily deal with. Uh, it's not only facts. There are aspects in the work that is that, that is documentary. There are things that are speculative. There are things that are uh, uh, kind of inventions. It's a little bit like um, um, what do you call it? Kind of realism mm-hmm. that uh, what do you call it? It has a name. Verisimilitude. Uh, uh, no, the the uh, what's his name? The South American writer. Uh, oh, magic uh, realism. Magic realism. It's a little bit. In some ways, it can be a little bit like magic realism. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so you don't have to be too literal in in telling this. No, I I think I I don't want to be too literal. You know, I think part of it is to recognize that dance and. And all arts are they uh, I, I wanted to have a uh, I want to say not artful because that sounds really artificial, but to be uh, but to be poetic in some ways that it goes beyond what is and so that it exists in some other place that is a that has an ability uh, to communicate to us. And so it so you don't need so it's not about having a fact checker. <laughs> that's they're checking the facts on something, and so it's, it doesn't operate that way. It it kind of is it's after I believe um, a truth. What is truthful about this? Not it's what's factual about it, but what is truthful about it? What resonates about this? Well, how to have it resonate in a way that people understand some truth that may be underneath the surface uh, about something? So I think that's. I mean, that's primarily the approach that I take or what I'm after or what I'm wanting to have happen. Your dancers act out several different scenarios of the encounter between the young man and girl. Um, Yeah. I'm assuming there were different versions told at the time of what actually happened. Right. You you say it was just simply he probably stepped on her toe. Yeah, I mean, I yeah. So I think I always start from the place. What what do we know that happened? What we know that happened is that he was in the elevator with her. She screamed, and then later she said he stepped on her toe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so that's what we know. Sounds but pretty we, innocent. All this, that's pretty innocent. But then there are all these speculations about what happened and what their relationship was. And so what I tried to do, or what uh, wanting to do in the piece, was to put that in front of people. And so that they could see that and how those – it's really – I mean, in some ways, it's, it's like how we are with our relationships with people in real life. It's not – sometimes it's not what people say to us or what they do. It's our interpretation of the person's intentions that is the thing that gets us bent out of shape. And so it's the – and that's central to that 
story is that people's interpretation of what happened is what created the massacre. And so, uh, and, and so that, so even though I said earlier that it's not about, it's not just about facts, but it, it, it's about a kind of truth, uh, sometimes it's, you know, to simply state the facts of something as opposed to one's understanding or interpretation of it might be the, it might be one of the ways that we might avoid, uh, conflict with other people. Now, dance is often used to tell a story, but has it been used in this way? Uh, the, the only uh, examples I can think of uh, telling history in dance might have been during the Soviet era when uh, yeah. w- when uh, some of the, the Soviet dance companies would have done uh, revolutionary kinds of stories. But they yeah. always had a positive ending. This does not have a positive yeah. ending. Yeah. Well, I, I, I think... I'm not. I mean, I, I don't think it's completely accurate to say that dance always told stories. I think in oh, America, no, Merce Cunningham came along and some others, and they yeah, changed. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think I think all of the dance. I mean, even before Merce, it started to shift towards abstraction. And one of the reasons that I, I mean, it's certainly during the McCarthy era, it shifted to abstraction. And my whole theory about that is it shifted is because if ar- artists did abstraction, you couldn't accuse them of anything. Uh-huh. It could be embedded in there. And so America, it, we're very different than dance in a, a lot of parts of the world with that we have kind of stayed in the world of abstraction while other uh, dance cultures, uh, uh, European and Asian, otherwise that they have all kind of maintain some connection to narrative dance even though it may not be literal or uh, uh literal or uh narrative they have kind of maintained a connection to it so um i i think you may be right i i, I think there were early modern dance people martha graham uh the, the hanya holmes the, the those people that they all in some way were kind of interested in in social justice in their work originally at first. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I think that's a very much a part of the American tradition. It's just people haven't been doing it. That thread of the uh, American modern dance uh, dance history just, had, just got lost. And it's primarily the story narrative part in America has stayed in, in the world of ballet. So... I don't know. I mean, there are other people who are certainly interested in doing what uh, or interested in the things that I am in dance in terms of kind of looking at history or social justice uh, uh, things as a way as a uh, how they explore their work. So um, I don't think I, I, I'm hesitant to say that I'm the only person that's doing it, you know, because somebody will say, well, I, this person is doing it. But I, I don't believe that I am. But I think maybe I'm one of the few that uh, does it. Still, something had to have pushed you in that direction. Did a light bulb go off and, uh, and lead you to, to think about using choreography as a political and an educational medium? Yeah. I think it, it, somebody said to me, it's always been part of what I've done. I just, I wasn't as conscious of it. It was just that uh, I'm going to do this. I think it probably started uh, back uh, with the Yusef Hawkins uh, murder uh, in the early 90s in New York and in Brooklyn. He was a young black man that went to, Bro- to uh, Brooklyn to uh, look at a used car and a, uh, and a bunch of uh, white youth saw him and thought he was coming there 
to there was a white girl that they thought he was coming to date that and so anyway they ended up beating him to death and so that was kind of the impetus that got I did a piece called the minstrel show which was uh, where I was looking at how stereotyping and assumptions about black people uh, uh, affected uh, has kind of permeated our uh, our our world and how in some ways that is the thing that has helped put that out there has been uh, the, the minstrel show, which was in some ways was the first popular form of American entertainment and stayed popular for a really long time. And it actually helped to um, it to kind of embed that those stereotypes of black people into the American consciousness for you know, over a hundred years. And so, and in some ways we're still living with the remnants of it. So I think that was kind of the start of it for me when I started to think about that and about how, what could I do uh, in terms of contributing to a conversation that was, I think in some ways I I was going to say an equitable America, but it's like more conscious America. Like what can I do to, uh, uh, kind of create awareness and consciousness and that it's okay to be, conscious, which a lot of people don't want to be, I think, uh, and are. And so it it kind of began with the minstrel show. Well, it, it would have been hard for there to be too much protest from the, the black community uh, in the Jim Crow South of the, the 1920s. But uh, even more recently, with the creation of groups like Black Lives Matter, we wind up mm-hmm. with an awful lot of people resisting and, and objecting to yeah. that mm-hmm. th- th- that that approach. Yeah, so, I mean people. I mean people don't really want to know. And when I say people, I'm really clear because sometimes I get we we I tend to use white people, and I'm and it sounds like I mean all people, but I really mean white people. <laughs> Tend to there's certain things we're, they we're don't not want the to only know. ones like, white people <laughs> right I've been, yes. been reading some stuff online that suggests that we're the only ones that count ah maybe <laughs> uh, forgive so, me for a bad joke it's, it's not it's not I mean it, it's I understand it it's like it's not you know it's a joke and it's not a joke you know I mean that's what white privilege is about. And we're still arguing over these things. And uh, obviously yes. what happened in Tulsa was a matter of white privilege. Yes, it was. Now, the music for Greenwood is by an Israeli composer, Emanuel Witzchum. Uh, yeah, did true. he write it specifically for this piece? Uh, some of it he did. Some of it, some of it's, it, it are, it's adaptations of some music that existed before and then some things that he wrote for it. And then... Uh, and then it also has sound design by Rob Whitmer, who is a Seattle-based artist like I am, and uh, and I've worked with him quite a bit. And he did so the so the the whole Emmanuel's music is kind of embedded inside that sound design. And what comes first in your process, the music or the choreography? Uh, it depends. With this piece, uh, the they kind of developed simultaneously did you commission it was um well it wasn't commissioned per se but it i mean in in terms of oh did i give him money to do it no it wasn't commissioned that way but he and i had this working relationship and so i asked him i said oh I, i've been listening to this music maybe i'd like to use some of it for this and but it's not 
exactly right. Can you do something with it? And he said, sure, tell me more. So we would go back and forth, sometimes daily, uh, about what something he would send me sketches of things of how the music could be adapted. I said, well, could we cut it and start it here? Uh, and then he would say, he would send me more things that was not just cuts, but additional things that were added to it as I explained to him more about what I was doing. Uh, I asked him, uh, what, what would he charge to do it? He said, uh, you can just use it. I don't, you hmm. don't have to pay me. I mean, that was my thing. With, I don't know what happened with him and Ailey, but for me, <laughs> but, but uh, he said, I'm fine with your using it. Do whatever you want to do. And that's kind of been my relationship with him for a while. I, uh, I met him. I, was on a, I did a three-month residency in Jerusalem, and I met him in Jerusalem when I was there. Many choreographers say that they'll use a particular dancer to choreograph on. Is that something mm -hmm. you do? No, uh, I I usually try to work only with the people that I that the piece will who will ultimately perform it that they become part of the process of doing that. I mean, of course, they're dancers that I'm inspired by. So uh, Jacqueline Green, who is the witness character, you might say, in the piece is somebody that I, I'd seen dance for a long time, but I was really inspired by her in terms of her movement quality. And so, and, and her kind of, her, her presence as a, as a, as a performer, um, that character actually is one that exists also in another piece of mine that was about lynchings. And, uh, and I've been very much inspired by this notion of, I mean, August Wilson utilized it with his Aunt Esther character in his plays, and who kind of who's this kind of ageless, timeless woman that kind of appears in in his plays, and but also in from Octavia Butler and this this the, the sense of that some people have the ability uh, to move through time mm -hmm. and and move back and forth between time, and that they are if not eternal, almost eternal. And so the Jacqueline Green character is kind of, is, is, is that notion is the part of the inspiration. And, and then, as I said, as a dancer, she is uh, quite remarkable. But in fact, all of the Ailey dancers are extraordinary. And so, it, so it, it's their extraordinariness, I think, that is... Was a, it was an, a major factor to the creation of the work. I, I tend not to be very good at creating in a vacuum, like imagining I have to have a body in front of me doing things. It doesn't have to be a specific body, but it just needs to be a body that I can work with. And in the process of working with that body or bodies, uh, ideas clarify themselves for me in terms of the movement. But you have your own dance company in Seattle. Uh, I do. You didn't create this uh, for Spectrum Dance Theater only uh, as a commission. Uh, I guess it's your fifth commission uh, for the Ailey yeah. Company. Mm -hmm. No, it wasn't. I didn't do it on my company. I, I tend not to do that. I mean, there's some things I will work out, but usually not in a company setting. If I work out movement, so there was movement that I had was exploring over the summer when I I have a a, a teacher. Uh, a kind of intensive, a, a workshop over the summer for two weeks, and then I explore things. I have movement ideas and things that I explore with the people who have signed up to do the workshop for the two weeks. And so things can kind of come out of that. There was certainly movement 
and ideas from that that came from that workshop that ended up in the Ailey piece, but it was not worked out on them. It was just kind of, uh, what do you call it? It was like experiments that was done, and then I took the experiments into the Ailey Company rehearsal and then developed it and refined it into what it actually ended up being on the stage. Do different dance companies have individual styles, uh, signature ways of, of moving when you're creating a dance for the Ailey Company? Will it look different uh, the, the, from something that you might have created for the Spectrum Dance Theater? Yeah, it, it, will, it always looks different. I mean, they, they, they do have, they have, they have signatures uh, in terms of it's mostly related in uh, aesthetic and movement values, that the things that they value. The organization historically, or the, the the collectiveness of who the dancers are at any given time. I was also making a piece at the same time on Pacific Northwest Ballet, which is a, a you know a contemporary ballet company here in Seattle, and uh, that piece is very different than the Greenwood piece, and it looks really different because they're ballet dancers and they dance on point, and so. But even when they're not. Uh, even if they are working inside the same genre, uh, I worked on with uh, Dayton Contemporary Dance, which in Dayton, Ohio, and they are very different dancers than the Ailey dancers, and so the work is very different on them than it is whatever work I make that I've made on them looks very different on them than the work that's on the Ailey company. Aren't the lines between modern dance and ballet getting blurred? Uh, we see any number of modern dance companies where. Dancers are dancing on point at times. Mm. Uh, Mark Morris, for think, example. Well, I think where he has people dancing on, I mean, in on on his company or with yeah. the work that he makes on ballet. Well, what, I don't know. I guess they, <laughs> the the line they kind of look like modern dance and ballet all merged. Well, I I think that's the nature of contemporary dance, and I think that's why uh, that we talk about it now not as modern dance but it's contemporary dance mm -hmm. because there's a certain amount of eclecticism in contemporary dance i think that got it that came from the that is a carryover from the postmodernist era in dance and so um it's just it's gotten expanded it's gotten more uh, uh one could say audience friendly i mean primarily it was originally it was oriented in the downtown dance scene which was more experimental and but now is the people who worked in the downtown dancing now work uptown and work with ballet companies. And so it's manifesting itself a little bit differently. And then I think also even people who don't work with ballet companies, uh, contemporary dancers, there's an incredible desire to explore uh, what dance can be or how it, how it might be, what it might look like, what it might communicate, what it might want to do. So... I think maybe contemporary dance is kind of maybe more uh, accurate way of describing it as opposed to modern dance. What I say about my own work, I say that it's c contemporary dance that comes from a modern dance tradition. So, You're uh, listening to Leonard Lopez at Large on WBAI New York 99.5 FM. Let's listen to a little bit of the music uh, from Emmanuel Witzholm, and then we'll continue our conversation. Okay.
we are back with Donald Byrd, whose Greenwood is currently being performed uh, in at the New York City Center, part of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater's uh, annual season there. Uh, we will, uh, Mr. Byrd, uh, we have uh, just a few more days to do some fundraising here at BAI. Will you excuse us for just a moment while we sure. uh, talk to our audience about that? And, there, well, and I understand fundraising, so please. <laughs> In fact, I was going to ask you about that later, having your own company. Uh, but uh, Jesse Lent joins me now. He's my executive producer. And Jesse, uh, the Alvin Ailey Company has actually – contributed something to our fundraiser yes i am hello leonard first of all hello everyone uh i am very excited to announce that alvin Ailey has generously donated two pairs of tickets to tomorrow night's show this is at 7 p.m the new year's eve show and this is exciting for a few reasons the obvious reason for anyone who's been listening to this hour is this is going to be the world premiere of Greenwood, the show that Leonard and Donald Byrd have been talking about. And so you will get to be the first uh, people in New York, anywhere in the world, apparently, to see this production. But it doesn't stop there, actually. Um, there are a couple other uh pieces that are going to be uh that are going to be danced that night it is a the world premiere of another piece called ounce of faith and also very exciting uh, this is i'm very excited to announce rather uh, that alvinelli's signature masterpiece revelations will be included in the program with a special return just for this performance by the company's revered dancer, Renee Robinson, and she will be performing the Wade in the Water section of Revelations. These two tickets are not available. Uh, these two pairs of tickets. I'm, tickets for this show, I believe, are sold out. Uh, I, I mm. Don't quote me on that. I know they're very hard to get, but you can get them. The first two people who become BAI buddies by going right now to WBAI.com org or calling 516-620-3602 and making a monthly contribution of $10 or more in the name of Leonard Lopate at large will receive a pair of tickets to this show. Wow. Uh, by the way, uh, bringing Mr. Bird in for just a moment, uh, you've said that seeing Revelations was a major influence on your decision to become a dancer. Uh, it was. Uh, I, I think um, it, it was quite a remarkable experience. I think it was 1970. I saw it in Boston. And uh, uh, I went to the performance because uh, my good friend at the time, the, who who became an actor, his name is William Hurt, and he said... <laughs> Some actor uh, named yeah, William Hurt. <laughs> yeah, an actor named William Hurt. And he said, uh, he says, I think you should go see this. And so I did. And uh, he had seen the company in December uh, 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 performing at City Center, and then we were back in Boston, and then I saw them, I think it was in February that I ended up seeing them, and uh, I saw Revelation, and it, it mm-hmm. blew my mind, actually. Um and it's it, it still my, it's still a, a, such a powerful piece. And, it is such a powerful and, and piece. And here we are. We're offering a chance for listeners to 
see it. Uh, I'm assuming the stickers are going to go pretty fast, Jesse. What do you think? I uh, well, I would hope so. Well, let's give I out would the number so. again. The number to call is five one six six two zero three six zero two, or you can go to wbai.org and just again to to be clear about this. The first two listeners who sign up to become BAI buddies, those are listeners who make a monthly contribution of $10 or more to the station. And if you do it in the name of Leonard Lopez at large, the first two BAI buddies that do that, the first two listeners who sign up to do that, each will receive a pair of tickets to tomorrow's 7 p.m. show uh, the world premiere of Greenwood, and as if that wasn't enough, the world premiere of Ounce of Faith, and of course, the iconic masterpiece Revelations will but, all be part of the same show. But we, uh, you may not be able to go, or the tickets may already be gone. That doesn't mean you shouldn't call. Uh, we need all the support we can get. We have just two more days to go before the end of the year and the end of the fundraiser. And uh, we have still have a huge uh, amount of money that we have to raise. We're hoping uh, that uh, you, in, will, uh, in, in this holiday time, feeling the holiday spirit uh, as, as a regular listener to WBAI, will consider becoming a member. You don't have to become a BAI buddy, but we hope that you will consider that. It's uh, $10 or more a month. It comes out of uh, your either your checking your account checking, your or credit card, credit whatever card, you want. And you can always cancel it at any time. But it really helps us because it allows us to plan for the future. But if you don't want to do that, if you um, want to give us a smaller amount or a bigger amount, uh, we are very happy to hear from you. 516-620-3602. We hope that you'll say that uh, you're doing it in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. We go to our website, WBAI.org, and, and follow the instructions. Uh, is there anything else we have to say, Jesse? I just think this that is so this, exciting this, this is a tickets. really special uh, offer and, and a big thanks to everyone at Alvin Alley for helping uh, to make this possible. Um, and, and I just wanted to say before I let you get back to this uh, fascinating conversation with this fascinating guest, Donald Byrd, this, uh, as you might expect, we're going to be off uh, for New Year's Eve and New Year's. We're going to be rebroadcasting a couple of our favorite shows. So we hope you'll tune in if you're hanging around your radio on New Year's Eve or New Year's. So that means right now, this hour is your last chance of 2019 to show us that this show matters and that you want it to continue and that you value the conversations that Leonard brings you five days a week with people like Donald Byrd and that gives people like Donald Byrd an hour, which if you ask me any less time for a guest like this would be criminal, but most shows simply do not allot that much time for one guest, let alone the kind of fascinating conversation and questions that the man to my left brings you every day. If all that matters to you, uh, and if you'd like to go see a tremendous Alvin Ailey performance tomorrow night in the meantime, please go to WBAI.org. Again, that's WBAI.org and follow the instructions on how to donate or call 516-620-3602 and tell the person on the other end of the line you want to become a BAI buddy in the name of Leonard Lopate at large. And from all of us at the show and at the station, Happy New Year and have a great evening. And just one more thing that I want to add. 
Donald Byrd said earlier that we pointed out that this uh, event is not all that well known, even though it's so important as part of American history and relevant to today. And yet, if you uh, turn on the news on or the talk shows on television or most radio stations, you're going to hear the same stuff talked about again and again. Uh, we are very proud of the fact that we discuss uh, other things here that we think are really important, and we hope that uh, that's something that you respond well to. So again, the number 516-620-3602, or go to our website, wbai.org. And now back to Donald Byrd. Um, now, we were talking about different dance styles. Didn't you, were you with the, did you study with Alvin Ailey at, uh, when you were younger, or did you train to be a classical dancer, ballet dancer? Um, uh, I, I did, I, I did both. I did, uh, I, I think the first dance training I had uh, was pretty eclectic. Um, it, um, I did, because I didn't know that there was a hierarchy or a supposed hierarchy. Mm. In dance, and so all dancing, I I loved, and so I just wanted to do it all. Uh, I did study at the Ailey School. Uh, I I don't remember exactly when. It was sometime in the early seventies. I was there, and I was there basically for two years, uh, and that was a you know a life changing experience. Just like seeing Revelations was a life changing experience. That the I mean the thing that I was going to say about Revelation was that when I saw Revelation at the end of it, and, and this certainly is the case still today, is that the audience was standing up and cheering and screaming, and I was standing up and cheering and screaming and tears running streaming down my face because I was so moved by it. But I remember thinking at the time, anything that can have this kind of impact and effect on people, that's what I wanted to do. And so and do it I, through I dance. Well, I, I didn't. I didn't know if it was dance. I just knew anything that could do that, that could get people standing up and cheering, or being moved, or thinking about their relationship to history by what they had just experienced. I wanted to do that, so I knew I. I it, it, I wanted to be involved in something that was in the theater, but I didn't know if it was going to be literary theater, like plays, and as an actor or a director, or if it was in dance. And so it wasn't until a little bit later that I decided that absolutely it was dance that I wanted, that's and, where I wanted to focus. And when did you realize you wanted to do choreography? And uh, and very soon, you were still very young, you founded your own dance company, Donald Byrd The Group, in 1968. Uh, 1978, uh, I'm sorry. 78, yeah. yeah. Uh, I, would, I, I started, I, I choreographed my first real dance uh, with a kind of consciousness about choreography in 1976. Uh, I was in California. I was dancing in the company of Gus Salmons Jr., who is a you know highly regarded, well respected uh, uh, performer, choreographer. Uh, I want to say dance personality because he is he's fantastic as a kind of a person. And uh, I was dancing in this company, and he was had been made the dean of the dance school at California Institute of the Arts. Uh, just a little bit north of Los Angeles, and so the company was in residence there uh, with him. We were half the year would be there, the other half would be in New York. And while I was there, I, uh, working with him, uh, I started making dances. Just to, because you know, suddenly I was just in this environment that I'd never been in quite something like that before, like Cal Arts, which is like all of the 
performing arts are there and uh, visual arts. And so it was kind of a, an inspiring environment. And so but I did, started choreographing. Did you know what you were getting into when you started your own company? I assume there must be lots of headaches involved. Um, how much time did you have to devote to fundraising and making business decisions and how much to making artistic decisions? Well, I, I, at the beginning, it was mostly just, it, it was kind of a, I mean, like in 1978, let's say, to about 1983, um, it was mostly, it wasn't a full-time company. We worked when we could, and I still was dancing because I, I needed to, because I didn't have any other way of uh, making a living. So I had to dance, and so I danced in other people's work uh, during that time. But I was the the the, the choreographic bug had bitten and i could not resist it you know i could not stop doing it could not doing it so it wasn't until later that when i committed to saying okay we're going to have we're going to work these times every day and and i'm like that that then the fundraising part started to come into play and it and actually um it's much easier, I'll say it this way, it's much easier fundraising at Spectrum than it was fundraising for Donald Byrd, the group. And and I had a lot of unease around fundraising for Donald Byrd, the group, because it sounded like I was being very self-promoting, mm-hmm. because the company had my name. And so I'm going to well, give Donald Byrd the didn't hurt Alvin Well, I mean, but you have to remember that the Alvin Ailey Thing, the brand of Alvin Ailey was not based on just the work of Alvin Ailey, mm-hmm. even though we know Revelations and the work of Alvin is the center of the aesthetic and the sensibility of that organization. The Alvin Ailey company always used other choreographers. You know, it was not uh, a, a single choreographer company. And so um, so the work of Tally Beatty, Donald McHale, Elio Primari, they were all a part of Ailey's the Ailey Dance Company's uh, repertory from the beginning. So my company, Donald Bird, the group, we only did my work, and so it seemed a little self-aggrandizing. Many of your recent works are about specific international events. Uh, one is called Farewell, a fantastical contemplation on America's relationship with China, which sounds like the title of a, an essay in the Huffington Post. Right. Uh, there's a piece inspired by the 1989 pro-democracy demonstration Tiananmen Square. Another, the theater of needless talents about the Holocaust. And then interrupted narratives war about the war in Iraq. And finally, a Chekhovian resolution um, about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Uh, they almost have a, a literary uh, sound to them, at least in their titles. Yeah, they they do. I don't think that's the experience when you visit them, but I think that's the impulse behind behind them. The the titles are. I think the work that I've done fairly, the most recent work is much more uh, poetic or uh, theatrical in terms of the titles, even though the underlying thing may be similar. So, the piece I did a piece shot that was three years ago, almost four, and shot. is a, it was inspired by uh, uh, the impulse to create. It was by, by the shooting of unarmed black men by the police. Mm-hmm. And But I used a particular incident that was captured on a cell phone by Rakia Scott uh, uh, when her husband was, was shot by the police right in front of her while she had her cell phone on uh, videoing. Uh, and then even... Uh, uh, 
uh, you know, the subsequent pieces that followed that about human trafficking and stuff, they have, uh, they have titles that don't, are not quite as kind of heady as the, the ones that you mentioned. I'm a little buzzy. I had a lot of coffee. <laughs> well, you I have to compliment you on another thing. You nominated for a Tony for choreography for The Color Purple in 2006. Uh, is yeah. that the only Broadway show you've done? And how different is choreographing a Broadway show from working with a professional dance troupe? Yeah. Uh, uh, Other well, than there's probably I mean, more money available for costumes, sets, and the like. Well, I mean, the, the, the primary thing, and I think money is right, is the, the operative word here, is that uh, Broadway is a, a commercial venture. So it is about making money for somebody. And so then that means that there you have money, uh, you are paid well, and uh, if you are uh, on the creative team of a Broadway show, you share in the profit pool. So that means you get a certain amount of money from the from all of the profits of the show or all of the revenue mm. of the show, I That's should say. Nice. So, yeah, so you're paid not only, uh, not in, ju- not just in terms of the box office, but also in merchandising. And so you, and so the back end of a Broadway show is, is very good. The, the, in terms of the, I would say the biggest difference is, I mean, for me, the biggest difference was the amount of, of how much you are scrutinized while you're doing what you're doing. I mean, I'm not a marquee, Broadway marquee choreographer, so the producers, the directors at the beginning, everybody was very much in the room watching what I was doing while I was doing it. Later on, it became like people would leave me alone, but at <laughs> first it was very much You that. had to earn their trust. Uh, yeah, that I was not going to like screw things up. And I think, yes, that's the only Broadway show that I've done that actually made it to Broadway. I've worked on a couple of productions that were Broadway-bound that didn't make it uh, or didn't make it with me. Uh, so, uh, yeah, I uh, I mean, and I, I've done other commercial uh, projects as well. I've worked in film, and so uh, they're, they're all really different, but in some ways they're all the same. And then I there's mean, it, an exhibition of your work, the America yeah. that is to be at the uh-huh. Fry Art Museum in Seattle that runs through the, uh, I guess, January 26th. Uh, will right. that be coming to New York? Uh, I don't know. I don't, I, at the moment, there are no plans to, but, you know, it, it's capable. The show is of traveling, and maybe it will. Uh, the, maybe the curators of, and the directors at the museum will find another place, another, museum that might be interested in it i know i'm really interested in this idea of like if i'm gonna my big wish right now would be to create a uh, a museum that would uh would focus on choreographers on dance makers and uh because it was really insightful to me about me and about dance from looking at this exhibition that was curated by somebody else i didn't do it you know he, uh, Thomas de France did the was the curator for the exhibition, and it just it's revealing about you and about your. It, for me, it was revealing about me and about my intentions and how there's certain threads that have kind of run through that have run through my work from the very beginning, which I was not always conscious of. And so, uh, I I would love to see uh, other choreographers. Um, 
have the experience of that. Now, as we pointed out, uh, this is the world premiere of Greenwood uh, since the Ailey season lasts only until the 5th of this month, the end, uh, or I guess next month, the end of this week. It'll only be performed here a few more times. Do you have plans to bring it to any other venues? Well, I mean, I actually don't control that. I mean, it was it was commissioned by the Ailey Company. They decide mm-hmm. where they're going to perform it. Uh, well, I'm it's always a really powerful with, piece, so I suspect oh, they're going to want you. to do it more. Yeah, I, I mean, I think their plan is to do it more when they do their American tour, domestic tour, starting, I think it starts in, in February. Um, and, um, I, and I certainly would like friends of mine who didn't make it to New York to see it, to be able to see it in their towns. I know that it's coming to, to Seattle and that it will play at the Paramount Theater there, that I do know. Uh, but the, where else? It, at, and in in Atlanta, because there's an, another event, a kind of panel discussion about it, and um, that will happen uh, in January, mid-January. And it would probably in, be Atlanta. appropriate for it to be performed during the uh, centennial of uh, uh, the yes. Tulsa race riots, uh, yeah. which will be held in Tulsa. Do you think? I, I you know I know nothing. Yeah. Well, well, I do know that I've really enjoyed talking with you. Thank you so much, Donald Byrd. Thank you. Greenwood is uh, currently uh, part of the the program of the Alvin Ailey American Dance Theater at New York City Center. Uh, And you don't have a lot of time to see it just through the end of this week. But it's been a real pleasure. And uh, I hope we speak again soon. I hope so, too. Thank you. Special thanks to Barbara Kahn, who produced this segment. If you're new to our program and you like what you've been hearing, you can access past shows streaming on demand at WBAI.org. We're also available as an iTunes podcast. And don't forget to check out London Lopin at Large on Facebook and Twitter and our website, LondonLopinAtLarge.com, where you can find links to all of our past shows. We hope you'll join us again tomorrow when Con Chapman will discuss his book, Rabbit's Blues, The Life and Music of Johnny Hodges. We'll see you then. And as I said, our pledge line is active once again, so why not show your support for Leonard Lopin at Large by making a donation of any amount right now by calling 516-620-3602 or by going to our website, WBAI.org. And I wanted to remind you that uh, Hi, our, our oops, Stein. am I talking the same time as somebody else? Uh, that uh, our fundraiser ends tomorrow, so we really hope that uh, loyal listeners to Leonard Lopez at large will call in and become members now, or go to our website wbai.org. Our pledge number is five one six six two zero three six zero two. The website is wbai.org, and we appreciate any show of support, any amount. If you want to keep WBAI going, going strong, uh, consider becoming a BAI buddy, tune of $10 a month until you tell us you no longer want us to uh, take out that money. But uh, the important thing is that you help keep this incredible radio station, which is now 60 years old, keep it going, 
keep it going strong and allowing us to do the kind of radio that we do. 516-620-3602. Go to our website, WBAI.org. You can also go to www.give2wbai.org, whatever you prefer.